Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Theater of Pain. It was a transformative experience, the first time I watched one of Teresa Valor's films. The exquisite violence, the disarmingly simple set design, the utterly pathological characters. All of it united in such a deeply unsettling way. It was a staggering depiction of an obscene humanity. And I knew right away it was the product of a unique talent. I became immediately obsessed with the films of Teresa Valor, seeking out and watching any that I could find. It was the late 90s then, so that meant hunting down VHS tapes at rental stores and college record shops. You couldn't just look her films up on the internet back then. And in a way, I think that made being a fan of hers all that much more intriguing and mysterious. There was no way of knowing who this person was, or how she was making these terrifying films. But every time you watched one of her tapes, it was clear you were witnessing something truly exceptional. By the early 2000s, Valor had created a remarkable body of work. And then, without warning, she had simply disappeared. The news of her vanishing had come about shortly after the release of her fifth film. She had been offered a residency at an art institute in upstate New York, but the school later announced that they'd been unable to locate Valor, which stirred public interest. Though Valor had no immediate family, concerned friends and colleagues would eventually file a missing persons report but there would never be an official explanation for her disappearance. She simply exited stage left. It was a story so mysterious and perplexing, I couldn't let it go. When I was in my mid-thirties, I decided to quit my job and began working full-time on my own filmmaking dream. I decided I was going to make a documentary about the life and work of Teresa Valor. This is me believing in myself. I began interviewing anyone I could find that had worked with her. I didn't want to sensationalize her disappearance, nor did I want to overshadow her work, but at the same time, I couldn't ignore her vanishing. The way I saw it, my film was as much about her life and art as it was about her disappearance. 
Her career began seemingly out of nowhere. As far as I could tell, she never attended a film school of any kind. She simply appeared when her first work debuted in 1994. It was titled Languish, and it spanned just over 40 minutes in runtime. It was filmed in color on Super 16mm film, and consists of what appears to be a single unbroken shot. The film depicts the final hour in an unfortunate man's life as he appears to waste away right before the viewer's eyes. When Languish begins, we're introduced to a nervous but fit-looking young man that appears to be checking himself into a doctor's office. Filmed with a sterile, documentarian gaze, the film follows its unnamed protagonist as his muscle tissue, the very structure of his body, slowly withers away. He grows first afraid, and then desperate, and then docile, as his arms and legs are reduced to the width of broomsticks, and his hands grow skeletal. His jawline reveals sickening contours, and his eyes appear to sink back into his head. By the end of the film, he's a narrow husk of skin and bone, but clearly still human. The effect wasn't produced by prosthetics or puppetry, and in fact, nobody has ever been able to definitively say how it was filmed, or even who starred in it. Valor did no press for the film, indeed made no public appearances of any kind throughout her career. But two years after making her debut, she followed it up with her second film, Terratism, in 1996. Here, she continued to experiment with her form. Terratism clocked in at a shorter runtime than her previous film, and it was presented in black and white instead of color, but the brutality of the film's content was no less severe. It begins with a disturbing tracking shot of the film's protagonist, a young pregnant woman who appears to have been attacked. She runs frantically through a field of waist-high grass, a luminous night sky suspended above her. Eventually she falls to the ground, clutching her stomach in agony. This traumatized woman proceeds to go into labor, laying there in that field. Using Valor's signature direct and unflinching camera style, the viewer is given a very personal view of the birth taking place. And while it is itself traumatizing to watch, what's equally traumatizing is what happens after. As she collects herself and inspects her offspring, she sees that it's egregiously deformed, its eyes a flat, milky white, its skin rigid like a stiff outer shell. When it's fully revealed to the camera, the baby opens its mouth, exposing rows of tiny, razor-like teeth. It's a revolting little creature, but still it looks too human to be completely fake. The articulation of its movements, the sound of its cries, the intricate expressions on its bony little face. It appears to be one of the greatest props ever conceived. And yet, as you watch, something in you insists that it's not just a prop, that this writhing mutant newborn is actually alive. For a moment, the viewer expects the mother to be appalled or horrified, but she doesn't recoil in terror. Instead, she embraces the infant lovingly, it stops crying briefly, just before the credits roll. 
Three years would pass before Valor's third film was released. Premiering in 1999, it was titled Salvation, and it differed somewhat from her first two films in that it relied heavily on religious imagery. Shot with high-resolution 70mm film, it took the viewer on a hallucinatory journey, presented from the perspective of a wounded soldier having visions as he lay dying on the battlefield. As he crawls through a system of trenches, seeking cover from the artillery fire raining down on him, he is also forced to navigate the network of his own memories, to reconcile with his religious guilt, his violent childhood. A deeply pessimistic but stunningly beautiful film, it was the first feature-length release from Valor, accompanied by a stark original soundtrack and featuring groundbreaking editing for its time. When another three years had passed, Valor's fourth film came out. It was titled Terminal, and it was something of a return to form for Valor. Her immaculate brand of body horror is on full display as the viewer follows the film's protagonist, a frustrated middle-aged woman, whose body is slowly consumed by an exotic fungus. Its effects begin so subtly, drawing a faint orange sheen over her skin, causing her to act antisocial. But by the end of the movie, she's a volatile wreck who's boarded herself up in an abandoned house in the woods. The fungus spreads across her skin and gets under her fingernails, causing them to fall off. Eventually, it consumes her eyes, hollowing out their sockets and filling them with that hazy orange fuzz. Like the films that came before it, Terminal leaves the viewer wondering how it's possible that an indie filmmaker with a minuscule budget can conjure such realistic depictions of human mutilation. The slow degradation of the main character's body is so convincing it makes the viewer wonder if they're watching an actual fatality. After Terminal, there would be no word from Valor for a full five years, until, finally, in 2007, she released her fifth and final film. It was titled Acolyte, and it was by far the most personally revealing piece she made. It was the only film of hers in which she actually appeared on screen, and it was certainly a shocking appearance. Acolyte follows a series of distressed but seemingly unconnected people through a small American town. The characters all seem to be afflicted by some vague, unknown condition. One character is obsessed with swallowing human teeth. Another insists that insect eggs are growing under their skin. But none of them elicit a reaction quite like the last character. The final sequence of the film begins with an exterior shot of an apartment building at night. The camera pans up from a parking lot strewn with autumn leaves and climbs up along the white clapboard siding until one of the windows enters the frame. Looking out at the world from behind a thin linen curtain looms a dark figure with one of its hands raised as if to wave. The next shot is apparently of the building's interior. Past dreary, violet-colored walls, the viewer is led down a hallway and eventually through an open door marked 27E. Valor uses a fisheye lens to accommodate the cramped interior of the apartment. Using unsettling but precise shots, she reveals dimly lit rooms containing simple furniture, 
and walls hung with dusty old landscape paintings. The viewer endures this eerie little tour of Middle America, waiting on edge for every dark corner to reveal the veiled figure shown a few shots before. Eventually, the camera moves into a bedroom, where one of the walls has been fitted with floor-to-ceiling mirrors. A tripod stands on the floor in the center of the room, near a bed that's hardly bigger than a cot. Sheets of flaking wallpaper hang from the walls, and the viewer can see what appears to be a closet in one corner of the room. From beneath the closet's door escapes a thin strip of light, making it seem like someone or something is inside. The high saturation of the film's colors give it a dreamy and nostalgic atmosphere, but something about it also feels deeply disconcerting. As the camera moves further into the room, the person filming is revealed in the mirror to be Teresa herself. She sets the camera down atop the tripod and secures it in place. Valor is a woman of average build and has long, almost jet black hair. She's wearing a jean jacket and combat boots, and holds a canvas bag in one hand. The preceding sections of the film are narrated by the characters that appear in them, providing simple and often nonsensical annotations to what's being shown on screen. But Valor has no narration in her section, opting instead to provide context in the form of bold title cards that fill the screen sporadically. The first of these title cards appears just after Valor walks onto the screen. I found God, say the bold red letters that fill the screen. When the letters disappear, Valor is removing her jean jacket. Underneath, she's wearing a white t-shirt, but soon she removes that as well. For a moment, she stands before the camera, wearing only her bra and a black pair of jeans. I trapped him in my closet says the second title card, the saturated red letters seeming to bleed through the screen. When the viewer returns to Valor, she's stooping to lift something out of her canvas bag, now sitting on the floor at her feet. She rummages through the bag for a moment and then stands, holding a flat-tipped chisel and a small sledgehammer. She holds the tools in each hand, staring solemnly at the camera as the third title card is shown on the screen. Yesterday, he showed me tomorrow, it says. When the screen returns to Valor, she's lifting the chisel and placing its sharp, flat tip against her ribcage. She holds it there, just below her heart. Then she draws the hammer back with the other hand before the fourth title card appears on the screen. Today, he made me like him, it says. It switches back to Valor, just as she swings the hammer and connects with the chisel. A heavy metallic clink is followed by a nauseating crunch as the chisel's tip penetrates her bony ribcage. A thick red flow of blood begins pouring from the wound, but somehow Valor doesn't even react. She just places the chisel's tip against her ribs again and crunches right through with another swing of the hammer. The gaping hole in her chest leaves the viewer mortified, blood pouring down her torso in streams. But behind the blood, 
something else seems to have been revealed by the injury. There appears to be a harsh stream of blue light radiating out of the wound. It grows increasingly intense as blood continues to pool on the ground. Valor lets the hammer and chisel fall to the floor as the vibrant blue light pours ever brighter from the gouge in her side. Soon, the light emanates not only from the wound, but from her eyes, her mouth. The glow brightens, and the screen is flooded with blue. Then, the blue slowly darkens, and out of the darkness is formed an opaque night sky, hanging above a flat, empty highway. The camera rests on the highway, until a pair of headlights appears, careening straight towards the camera. The viewer can't make out any details about the car, the make or model, who might be driving. It's all obscured by the glare of the headlights barreling towards the viewer. For a minute, the car looks like it's going to smash right through the screen, but it comes screeching to a halt and stops just shy, its headlights bearing down on the camera. Then, the screen goes black, and Teresa Valor's final film is over. Just two months after Acolyte's release, Valor would be reported missing. I remember being shocked at the time, already such a devout fan of her work. Years went by, but my interest in Valor never waned. I was still just as fascinated by her films and troubled by her vanishing as I always had been. Something continuously drew me to her enigmatic body of work, and in 2015, I quit my job at the post office and bought a professional camcorder. I was driven not only by my desire to shed light on Valor's unexplained disappearance, but also what felt like an unrealized dream of my own. I didn't know if my film about Teresa Valor would ever get made, or if anyone would ever want to see it, but I knew that I had to try. Over the next two years, I made lots of headway, but it wasn't all easy. Of all the people that worked with Teresa on her films, I was able to locate and speak with only a handful. Essentially, nothing was known about most of the actors she worked with, and several of them, including the woman who gave birth in terrorism and the man who wasted away in languish, have never been identified. Those who did speak with me weren't willing to say much about what it was like to work with her. It was as if they saw it as a betrayal of some kind to reveal what it was like to be on set with Teresa. But there was one significant development that would completely change the scope and direction of my documentary, holding the potential to give me a much more personal view of Valor's life. I was on my way home from a trip to Connecticut to visit my parents when I got a text from my friend and occasional research assistant, Piper Duval. Piper had been trying to track down locations where Valor had filmed. I was hoping to travel to some of her original shooting locations to get some documentary footage. Piper told me she'd been using a bot to reverse image search some stills from Valor's films. And apparently, she'd found something. It was the apartment building where the final scenes of Acolyte were shot. I pulled my car over to the side of the road and stared at the picture Piper had sent. A wide, three-story apartment building set next to an empty parking lot. 
I could tell immediately it was the one from the film. Holy shit, I responded. Where is it? A second later, Piper sent me the address. It was in Minot, North Dakota. When I got home that afternoon, I looked up the building online. I stared at it on street view in disbelief. From what I could tell, it was still standing, and further research revealed that it even appeared to still have people living in it. I wasted no time packing a bag and loading up my camera equipment. By the time the sun rose the following morning, I was on my way to North Dakota. This is me making rash decisions. Out on the road, it was a blustery but surprisingly warm November day. Clouds shaped like big pieces of popcorn drifted across the sky. As I drove, I thought about Valor's films, and especially about her final film. I anticipated what it would feel like to stand in the place where that footage was captured. In my mind, I kept returning to the words that weaved through those cryptic final scenes. I found God. I trapped him in my closet. Yesterday, he showed me tomorrow. Today, he made me like him. There had been plenty of debate through the years about what exactly the words were supposed to mean. The most commonly held belief was that it was a poetic commentary on her career as an artist but I'd always suspected that it represented something more elusive than that. And like the cryptic expressions, the scenes they appeared throughout generated their own controversy as well. One of the most popular Teresa Valor conspiracy theories is that the hammer and chisel scene is real, and that she actually committed suicide on film in Acolyte. It was her morbid swan song, her final violent brushstroke. Her body was allegedly disposed of, and someone else edited and released the film for her posthumously. The theory follows that she was then pronounced missing as a way of addressing her absence, but I never bought into the idea. Her films are full of hyper-realistic violence. Why would only her death scene be real, but none of the others? But what if they are real? I wondered. What if? Everything she filmed is real. That, of course, was a hotly debated theory as well. The idea that none of Valor's films are staged, and are instead simply documentation of various real-life atrocities, had been around almost as long as her films had been out. Because she never offered any kind of explanation or context for her mysterious works, speculation was rife. I'd always thought the idea ludicrous, though. Her films didn't have the sensibility of amateur mondo horror shock docs like Faces of Death. They were cinematic masterpieces, deftly rendered narratives with layers of meaning. To think that Valor and her film crew were capturing real human suffering and capitalizing on it apathetically seemed ridiculous to me and I took the fact that I was even considering it as an indication that it was time for me to get off the road. All those hours of staring at the highway had clearly turned my brain into mush. I made it past Chicago, but stopped before I hit the Wisconsin border. I rented a room at a dingy roadside motel and slept restlessly until about four in the morning. Then I rose and got back on the road. 
I drove past stuffy Midwestern towns, through woods filled with ancient-looking trees. I drove across miles of empty farmland and among endless caravans of SUVs. When I finally reached Minot, it was well after dark. It was a small but quaint town, set against a backdrop of gently sloping hills, bisected by a single main road. I was exhausted after another day of driving, so I checked into a Best Western and promptly fell asleep. It was cloudy and cold out the following morning. When I awoke, I drove straight over to the apartment building. It was shocking to see in person, after years of being haunted by the footage of it. I genuinely couldn't believe that I was actually standing before it in person. I looked up at the window where the veiled figure appeared in the film. I wonder if I can get inside, I thought. I went to the building's main entrance, where an elaborate brick arch stood above the door. To the side was an old metal buzzer with a directory of the residents' names listed. I buzzed the building's superintendent, listed as Randy Kadorian, and to my surprise, he let me inside. He was a quiet and solemn man with a shiny bald head and a perpetually wrinkled brow. I told him I was making a documentary about Teresa Valor and asked if he'd ever heard of her. He frowned as if straining to remember and then nodded. She used to live here, didn't she? He said. Did she really? I asked. I thought she just filmed a few scenes here. Randy shook his head. No, she lived in 27E for a few years, up until about 2007. I'd heard that she was a filmmaker, he added, but I never saw any of her movies. So you knew her, I said. You actually met her. He looked at me askance. Yeah, he said, smiling. She didn't seem that special to me. Kept to herself, mostly. Is her room occupied? I asked. I'd love to film in it, if it's not. If you pay me a month's rent, you can do whatever you want in it, he said. This was a proposition I hadn't even anticipated, and certainly hadn't budgeted for. But at the same time, I couldn't possibly pass it up. I had just enough cash on me to pay the room's rent, $380, and a few minutes later I was carrying my bags and camera equipment up the stairs, acutely aware of the fact that my documentary had taken a radical turn, that I now had something truly exclusive to offer viewers, an intimate peek inside Teresa Valor's life. This is me seeing my dreams realized. When I unlocked the door to 27E and went inside, I felt an extreme sense of deja vu, seeing the room I'd watched on film so many times before. It was jarring how similar it looked. Ten years after Acolyte was filmed, much of the furniture remained. The carpet was the same rusty brown color. The walls were the same flat gray. Two green reclining chairs sat in the living room a painting of a snow-capped mountaintop hanging from the wall between them. Beyond the living room stood a cramped kitchen, its formica countertops and tired-looking appliances seeming to linger on the edge of obscurity. The bathroom, too, was certainly dated, with its sun-tinged wallpaper and popcorn ceiling. 
although it did have a nice clawfoot tub. The floor-to-ceiling mirrors had been removed from the bedroom wall, but otherwise the apartment was basically identical to the way it appeared in the film. Even the lumpy little mattress remained. The first night I was there, I spent hours walking around shooting B-roll of the apartment's interior. At around midnight, I finally put my camera down and laid out my bedroll on top of the mattress, still in mild disbelief about where I was. As I brushed my teeth, I gazed through the curtains at the darkened city of Minot, its streets quiet and empty. Directly across from the apartment stood a Pentecostal church with a sharp, slanted roof. Next to it was what looked like a two-story office building, surrounded by tall trees. As I looked out at the dark, rectangular building, I noticed something odd. It was too dark and too distant to see in any detail, but it seemed like someone was standing on the building's roof. The silhouette of a vaguely human shape seemed to be staring back at me. Or is that just a chimney? I wondered. I lifted my hand, seeing if they would wave, but the figure didn't move. It just stood there, stock still. If it is a person, they've got to be cold, I thought. Temperatures were near freezing out there. I stood for a few minutes, waiting to see some kind of movement. When none came, I turned out the lights and went to bed, but not before locking the door. I laid there for some time, still trying to come to terms with the fact that I was sleeping in the room where one of the most disturbing scenes I'd ever witnessed was filmed. Eventually, I was near the edge of sleep, lingering in that twilight of the mind. And just as I was about to drift off, I heard the unmistakable sound of a door closing. I sat up in bed, trying to determine where the sound had come from. It seemed like it was close, but the bedroom door was open. Could it have been the closet door? Had the closet door been open when I'd laid down? I couldn't remember. I got up and picked up a tripod, hoisting it over my shoulder, ready to swing at any intruder. I flipped the lights on and walked over to the closet door, slowly pulling it open. But it was empty. I walked through the entire apartment, but couldn't find anything. I guessed that perhaps I had just dreamed the sound of the door closing. Before I got back in bed, I looked out the window at the building across the street. Whatever had been there on its roof was gone. Was it a person? I wondered. Had I seen anything at all? I was unsettled, but ultimately shrugged it off and laid back down. As I lay there and drifted towards sleep, I couldn't get those final few minutes of acolyte out of my head. The horrifying footage of Teresa pulverizing her own ribcage. The sound of the chisel crushing her bones. And then the ambiguous scene that followed. The deep blue light gradually transforming into an empty highway. The car speeding through the darkness straight towards the camera before stopping just shy. I wondered, as I often did, what it was all supposed to mean. When I awoke the following morning, a light snow had begun to fall, painting the outside world a simple, featureless white. After breakfast and a cup of coffee, 
I drove around town shooting some footage of the freshly fallen snow. I wondered if Minot was the town where Teresa grew up, or if she had just moved there to make her last film. I thought that perhaps I could get some more information out of Randy about what she was like as a person. When I got back to the apartment, though, I couldn't find him. I knocked on his door, but got no answer. I spent the rest of the afternoon trying to speak with Teresa's neighbors, seeing if any had lived there long enough to remember her, but none that I talked to had. That night I bought a six-pack of cheap beer and sat in the kitchen reviewing some of the footage I'd shot. I went to sleep with a slight buzz and woke up at 3 a.m. feeling like my bladder was about to burst. I stumbled out of bed, still hazy, the apartment's wooden floor creaking beneath my feet. Feeling my way through the darkness, I shuffled down the narrow hallway leading to the bathroom. The bathroom tile was cold against my feet, so I stood on a towel as I pissed. When I'd relieved myself, I hurried back to bed but something stopped me before I reached the mattress. As I walked through the bedroom, I felt something wet against the bottom of my foot. I ran and turned on the lights, inspecting the bedroom's worn hardwood floor. And in the center of the room, not far from the bed, I could see a puddle of what looked like blood. It was circular and a few inches across, disturbed only by the mark my toes and forefoot had made when I'd stepped in it. Seeing it there, having appeared seemingly out of nowhere, was petrifying. After searching the entire apartment and once again finding it empty, I did something that may seem ridiculous. Instead of calling the police or reporting it to somebody, I booted up my camera and documented the discovery. This is me reacting poorly. I seriously can't believe this. I have no clue where it came from. I checked the whole apartment, checked my body. I don't have any cuts or anything, but it definitely seems like blood. It smells like blood, it looks like blood. I don't know what the hell to do. I'm gonna save some, see if I could get it tested. Maybe I can find out where it came from. When I awoke the following morning, my mind was still foggy. It felt like it was freezing in the apartment despite the thermostat reading 68 degrees. I looked out the window as I brushed my teeth, seeing a few more inches of snow had fallen. And then I noticed the paper towels in the trash can, the ones I'd used to clean up the puddle of blood the night before, leaving smudges of reddish-brown on everything they touched. The mere sight of them made me uneasy. I was still troubled by the fact that I couldn't explain where the blood had come from, I spent the morning trying to find a lab that I could take it to for testing. I hoped that by finding out what kind of blood it was, I could determine its source. But I couldn't find anyone in the local area who was willing to take on such a request. As I was walking from the living room to the kitchen, about to hang up the phone, I again heard the sound of a door closing. Just as I had on my first night in the apartment. Again, it sounded like it had come from the bedroom. I crept slowly down the hallway towards it. In the bedroom, everything was as I'd left it. Only, the closet door was closed. This time, I was certain I'd left it open. I picked up the tripod again, 
ready to swing as I slowly pulled the door open. But again, it was empty. The only things inside were a few wire hangers and a dusty old ironing board. I was pushing the closet door shut when my phone rang. It was Terrence Duval, Piper's brother. The second I saw the name, I felt a sinking sensation in my gut. Hey, Terry, I said. What's up? He told me that he knew there was no painless way to discuss this. But being that Piper and I were close, he thought I had the right to know. No. No what? I said. I'm sorry, he replied simply. It was a pulmonary embolism. I was in shock. I just talked to her six days ago, I said. I know it feels that way, he replied. No, really, I said. We texted last week. She sent me. Look, he said, I didn't plan on getting into the details, but based on her state of decomposition, they're estimating she died at least ten days ago. A few of us were getting worried since we hadn't heard from her, so we called in a welfare check. That's how we found out. The investigator said the last time she used her phone was two weeks ago. My head was spinning. I knew Terry had no reason to lie to me, and I didn't expect him to be mistaking the date of his own sister's death. But if Piper hadn't texted me six days before, who did? When I'd offered Terry my condolences and hung up the phone, I was left with a deep sense of dread. I looked at the closet door that stood before me, at the wall that was once covered in mirrors. I knew in that moment that I had to leave. I didn't know who or what was responsible, but I felt a distinct sense that I had been coaxed into coming there, enticed by a force I didn't understand, and I wasn't going to stay long enough to find out why. I packed all my belongings haphazardly and lugged them through the snow to my car. I was frustrated that I didn't get anything more definitive on film, but I was willing to cut losses. I had an overwhelming feeling that something meant to do me harm, and not even my own documentary was worth taking on that risk. It had stopped snowing and the roads were fairly clear, so I spared no time getting on the highway and starting the long trek home. Night had fallen by the time I passed Fargo and started making my way south through Minnesota. I got drowsy as the miles wore on, but I was determined to keep driving heeding an unspoken urge to get as far away from that apartment building as possible. This is me running for my life. I had just rounded a bend a few miles north of St. Cloud, when something startled me out of my semi-conscious state. I slammed on my brakes, realizing someone was standing in the middle of the highway. My car slid across the frigid pavement, tires screeching, until at last I stopped just feet shy of hitting the person. I stared through my windshield at the solitary pedestrian, their form unflinching in the beam of my headlights, as if they knew all along that I would stop in time. There was a part of me that understood immediately what was going on, and there's a part of me that will never make sense of what I saw out on the highway that night. It was a woman of slight to average build, standing motionless behind the lens of a bulky camcorder 
that was pointed straight back at me. She wore faded jeans and a black leather jacket, strands of dark hair obscuring her face as she peered into her camera's viewfinder. It felt like a moment dislodged in time, a scene that was impossibly familiar. Yesterday, he showed me tomorrow, said a voice in my head. Hey, Jeff here. Uh, if you enjoy my podcast, I just want to let you know that I have a Patreon that you can subscribe to. It's $3 per episode. You get to listen to every episode a few days early, and you get to listen without ads. Plus, you also get access to my full-length audiobook, Solace. It's sort of a cosmic horror slash mystery story where this journalist uncovers uh, unexplainable disappearance and sort of becomes obsessed with it. You can listen to the first 30 minutes for free in the episode titled Solace. The Patreon also has its own RSS feed, so you can listen on whatever podcasting app you like. And the link for it is in the show notes, as well as in the bio for the show. But if you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. You can also leave a rating or write a review. That goes a long way for helping the show get listeners. You can follow me on social media. The links for Instagram and Twitter will be in the show notes as well. And of course, just thank you for being here. It seriously means the world to me. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.